So Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I know that some of you are daydreamers. In fact, you may give me five, maybe six minutes, and then let the daydreaming begin. Well, I know this because I'm a daydreamer. I love to sit and ponder. All of my thoughts are deep thoughts, very significant thoughts. No matter what I say, uh, that, that's true. And uh, all your thoughts, aren't they? They're deep thoughts, significant thoughts. This uh, passage this morning is rather interesting because in verse 18, uh, we actually can ask this question. What do you think it is that Paul daydreams about now, the word in verse 18 is not daydream in fact the word daydream uh, really doesn't show up in scripture uh, what the word is is the word uh, to consider but uh, really uh, it's to ponder so in verse 18 uh, we have Paul pondering well I know what I ponder about and I have a guess at what you ponder about what does Paul ponder about? And in verse 18, he says that uh, Paul uh, considers suffering, uh, the suffering of the present. Uh, now, he doesn't do that uh, alone. It's not simply the suffering of the present that occupies uh, the daydreams of Paul. Uh, he is uh, pondering the suffering of the present, but he's also pondering uh, the glory to be revealed in the future. Now, what Paul's doing in verse 18 is exactly what we should be doing. So, daydream away, but daydream rightly. 
But then in verse 28 of our passage, we have a remarkable contrast. And I'd like for you to, to, to jump forward to verse 28 because uh, as Paul ponders something in verse 18, in verse 28, uh, he actually knows something or uh, understands something. In fact, uh, he wraps us up into verse 28. All those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, uh, Paul says that there's something that we know uh, and so uh, we, we have uh, almost a, a syncopation between 18 and, uh, and 28. There's something to consider uh, and there's something to know. Uh, now those, those uh, two verbs are related to one another and that's where we'll uh, find ourselves at the, uh, at the end of this sermon. But uh, right away we need to notice something. That the suffering of Paul actually drives him to think more deeply about things. It's as if Paul's suffering stops him in his tracks and is worthy of the subject of thinking. Suffering, it's worth thinking about. Doesn't that just sound dangerous? Suffering's worth thinking about. It is for a Christian, but even Christians know what it's like to get lost in suffering to such a degree that, that in those deep thoughts, in those ponderings, uh, we're actually not thinking about our suffering the way Paul is in verse 18. We all know what it's like to get lost in our thoughts about suffering. How will I ever endure? How can I make it stop? What is the point of any of this? Well, these, these are familiar thoughts. So Paul's teaching us how to rightly, as a Christian, uh, actually dwell upon the nature uh, of suffering. Because for, for the Christian, uh, suffering actually points us to uh, things that we actually know about God. Or we could say this, uh, because of the things that we actually know about God are true, uh, we can suffer in a way, as Christians, it's very different than suffering as a non-Christian. Uh, we can suffer, and sure, we do. But we can think about that suffering well. Now the dominant thought of this passage, even though it takes us to uh, that great uh, climactic passage in verse uh, 30, uh, the, the, the dominant thought of Paul here is that suffering is a real part of the Christian life. Paul doesn't even leave this open for debate. Suffering is a real part of the Christian life. But through the Holy Spirit for the Christian... That, that suffering actually uh, is turned into uh, something in which we can understand God's purpose for our lives. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit uh, actually uh, unfolds our suffering right into the very purposes of God. We, we understand the purposes of God more clearly by the Holy Spirit as we ponder our suffering. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to divide the passage in, uh, in two parts. Uh, uh, first, consider what Paul uh, is actually pondering, verses 18 through 27, uh, and then uh, what it is that Paul and we know as Christians. Uh, present suffering in the Christian life is where Paul begins. This is what Paul is considering. And so uh, there it is in front of us in verse 18. Uh, it's uh, Paul thinking about present suffering as a Christian, uh, writing uh, to Christians. And when he talks about suffering, you need to notice in verse 18 that the word for suffering is in the plural. 
Paul here is not talking uh, about uh, the, a philosophical view of suffering in general. Verse 18 is actually really earthy. Uh, suffering is real. It's sufferings. They're things that uh, Paul experiences, and they're things that the Roman Christians uh, experience. And we could ask ourselves, what exactly are these uh, sufferings? What is he talking about? Now, he doesn't define that here in this passage, but I think that there's some extended uh, context that sheds light uh, that he is talking about uh, at least two kinds of suffering, but maybe a third. Two kinds of suffering, but maybe a third. This is what Paul is pondering. What are the two kinds of suffering, first of all? Well, first of all, the context of Romans says that suffering is the suffering that's the result of living in a world uh, full of wickedness. It's a suffering that's the result of persecution. Uh, Where's the evidence for this? Well, uh, remember back in the very beginning of the letter, uh, Paul says this in Romans 1 verse 11. He says, I long to see you. Why? Why does he long to see the Roman Christians? That I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Why? To strengthen you. That we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Both yours and mine. Now, Paul outlines his own sufferings in uh, numerous uh, parts of his letters. It's not here, but 2 Corinthians 6, Paul uh, is uh, uh, very uh, comfortable speaking about the beatings that he's received as a Christian, the imprisonments, the riots, the labors, the sleepless nights, uh, the hunger, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But I think it's fair to assume from Romans chapter 1 that uh, these Roman Christians are themselves the subject of persecution. I long to see you that I might strengthen you. And then in Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul describes the, the setting of the Roman Christians as a setting in which they're surrounded by wickedness, surrounded by ungodliness. Uh, Paul actually describes these kind of people in chapter 1 of Romans. Uh, The Roman Christians are surrounded by those who refuse to worship God. They are fools. They are followers of lies. They pursue homosexual relationships. They're filled with evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife. Uh, Paul in chapter 1 is is really describing the setting in which the Roman Christians uh, find themselves. And not only that, in Romans 1 verse 32, uh, the settings, uh, the setting of the Roman Christians is a setting in which uh, any, anyone who would approve of wickedness, those folks are actually elevated. Those folks are praised. Uh, this is the setting of this church in the city of Rome, surrounded by wickedness. We can assume that they are uh, feeling persecution in a number of ways. Uh, The Roman Christians, by their lives, uh, by their profession of faith, they're an ostracized people in Rome. The tables are stacked against them, as it were. Uh, To uh, not be ashamed of the gospel, which is what Paul says in 116, to not be ashamed of the gospel uh, actually is a real challenge for the Roman Christians. To not be ashamed of the gospel comes with social and emotional and financial implications, uh, perhaps even more so in their era than ours, although we feel that as well. Uh, To go in public and to proclaim that you're a Christian, that you believe in the one true God, 
that you believe that Jesus was a real person, that he is the, the Lord of your life, that he lived and he died on the cross and he was resurrected. I mean, these are things that are uh, heard in our own setting uh, as, well, you know how they're received. And so the first kind of suffering that Paul is talking about is a, a, the kind of suffering that results uh, from a variety of persecutions that the Romans feel as Christians, but also uh, that we feel as Christians. I think the context uh, more than hints at this. Uh, the second kind of suffering is the suffering that is very plain to us. We've seen this all over Romans chapter 7, and this is the suffering that's the result not of persecution, but the result of indwelling sin. This is the context directly uh, spilling into Romans chapter 8. Uh, Rome, as a city, is really a palace of temptation for any man or woman, Christian or otherwise. Uh, Rome is the kind of city in which you can sin freely. It's praised. And Paul has told the Roman Christians in 7 verse 12 that uh, God's law is holy and righteous and good. It's written on their hearts, but it's also written in the Bible. But also in Romans chapter 7, Paul acknowledges uh, not only the setting in which they live, but he acknowledges the setting of their own hearts. He says uh, that uh, Paul himself delights in the law of God and his inner being. And he's writing to Christians who uh, delight in the law of God in their inner being. But Paul confesses that there are times when he doesn't do the good that he wants, but instead the evil that he doesn't want. Well, and that's true for the Christians in Rome as well. That's true for us. And so just being a, a human being who is a Christian is actually uh, in and of itself a kind of suffering. Now, I think these are uh, uh, come from the context in such a way that uh, it's clear that when Paul is talking about sufferings, when he is pondering sufferings, uh, he uh, certainly has in his mind suffering that comes as the result of persecution uh, and also suffering that comes the, uh, as a result of indwelling sin. But I think that there's a third kind of suffering, a more ordinary kind of suffering, that even if we had just this kind of suffering, uh, Paul's pondering would be very helpful to us. And that's just the suffering... Uh, that is a part of living in this present age. It's the suffering that is a part of uh, our, our dreams and our vision for life not coming to fruition. It's the kind of suffering that we uh, feel as we watch loved ones slowly die before our very eyes, or as we ourselves slowly die. It's the kind of suffering that comes from uh, living a life of grief, it's the kind of suffering that comes from relationships that are strained, uh, that are difficult. You know, it's hard to tell what Paul is after in verse 18. He doesn't clearly tell us what the sufferings are. But persecution and indwelling sin and just the sufferings of human life, I think all need to be included. Now, these sufferings that Paul talks about are real experiences, but there's something else that we all need to know. The sufferings are real, but the sufferings are not defining. Now, this is uh, a real vial of grace for the Christian. These sufferings don't define us. The sufferings for a Christian are actually outweighed by something else, as real as they are. 
as diverse as they are, as surprising as they might be, the sufferings of a Christian are outweighed by the glory of God that will be revealed in the future. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying that suffering, it doesn't win. This is more than saying that suffering is temporary. Although it's temporary, there's a chronological implication in verse 18. Uh, Suffering, to be sure, is uh, temporary. But even in this present time, even as we are experiencing the suffering, the suffering doesn't win. This is why the Bible describes God's grace and His glory and His power and His greatness and His knowledge and His peace as surpassing, surpassing all of these these benefits of redemption, grace, glory, power, greatness, knowledge, peace, all of these surpass our sufferings, go beyond our sufferings, contain our sufferings such that our sufferings cannot cannot define us. And Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now I'm a pastor and I would say that the majority of my conversations uh, privately with folks in the church have a lot to do with suffering. It hurts struggles with sin, suffering in all, uh, all different varieties. I know that we understand suffering as a congregation. But it's actually safe for a Christian to ponder those sufferings because by God's grace, the sufferings don't define us. So as we look at what Paul is doing here, uh, Paul is uh, uh, considering the present suffering in the Christian life. That's verse 18. But he's also pondering this, the present help in the Christian life. He's pondering suffering, but he's pondering help. And this is verses 19 through 27. Look what he says in verse 19. Uh, He says that uh, this uh, spirit, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit actually uh, helps us in this present life. Uh, Paul is going to tell us that the Holy Spirit helps in two ways. Uh, In this present life, amidst our suffering, the Holy Spirit helps us to wait well and helps us to pray well. The Holy Spirit helps us to wait well. The, uh, The word wait is in verse 19 and verse 23 and verse 25. Waiting. I don't know about you. This is one of my least favorite things in all the world. I have no interest in waiting for anything. But it's all over this passage. And praise be to God that someone like me has the help of the Holy Spirit that I might be able to not only wait, but to wait uh, eagerly. Uh, Look where Paul uh, actually begins. He begins with creation, uh, the waiting of creation. Now, this is is pretty odd. I think all of us need to be able to to admit uh, this is odd. Creation, waiting, waiting eagerly. Now, it's odd, but think about this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, uh, Paul has already uh, uh, taught us how to view creation. Uh, creation declares God's invisible attributes. 
So already at this point in Romans chapter 8, we should have in the back of our minds a creation of Romans chapter 1, a creation that declares, that says something. It it takes the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power, his divine nature, and creation actually uh, reveals uh, those attributes of God. Psalm 19 uh, is an echo of Romans uh, 1, 19 and 20. Psalm 19 begins uh, to tell us that the creation declares the glory of God, uh, the day pours out speech, the night reveals knowledge, the voice of creation goes out through all the earth. Now, this is Paul's starting point for creation. Creation, because it's made by God, speaks. Now, it's true that in order to read the Bible, uh, there is such a thing as a Christian imagination. We need to engage our minds. I don't know what exactly Paul means here. I don't I don't know how it is that uh, creation is actually waiting. When I look at a rock, it's easier for me to see that the rock is declaring the glory of God than it is to see that the, that the rock is anxiously awaiting the salvation of mankind. And maybe that's just my own lack of imagination, but Paul is very clear here that this uh, creation that declares God's glory uh, does so by uh, showing his invisible attributes, but also does so by waiting with eager longing. Uh, God created the world with a purpose. And God, uh, by his divine knowledge, he permitted that purpose to be uh, interrupted. So the purpose of creation is interrupted, and it's interrupted how? Well, listen to what God says to Adam and Eve. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Genesis 3. Do you think that God created creation as simply a scenic backdrop? To just always remain the same? God creates creation and he calls it good. He has a purpose for creation. And his intended purpose he has permitted to be interrupted by the sin of Adam. And in Adam's sin, well, uh, creation then has become a curse to man. But God's purpose is for the world to be restored. And as the curse of man is dealt with, Well, so too is the curse of the land dealt with. But for now, right now, Paul says in verse 22 that creation uh, groans together. That everything about creation groans together. Verse 22, we could read that as uh, creation size. Think about that. When we look at the uh, beauty of creation, do we think in that stillness that it's sighing? I mean, I don't, but here we should. Creation somehow knows God's plan. Creation knows that there's something better. Creation knows that um, it is not in its intended form right now. Now, it takes some imagination for that, but Paul just, just seamlessly carries that image of creation sighing right into the Christian sighing. The Christian also is waiting. Now this, I understand. I may not know how a mountain sighs, but I know how I sigh. I know how I wait. But Paul says that a Christian is actually able to wait in such a way that they uh, are waiting uh, eagerly. There's there's a kind of waiting that the Christian has that's actually a a confident waiting, just like the waiting of creation. Uh, Paul says that the Christian has, in verse 23, a first fruit. Uh, That's the Holy Spirit. And because of the Holy Spirit, the Christian is able to wait appropriately. Uh, 
when Paul says in verse 23 that the Holy Spirit is a first fruit, the image there is that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. Uh, it's, it's almost like it's a, it's a down payment. Uh, it is a promise of something in the future that we can taste and benefit from right here in the present. That's what first fruit means. And so we have the Holy Spirit that makes it possible for us to do what seems utterly impossible, and that is to be patient. You see, Christian waiting, it's actually not idleness. We're so proactive, aren't we? We we think that uh, in order to wait, in order to be patient, that's just code language for being idle. That's code language for not trying to solve your own problems. That's code language uh, for not taking initiative. But there's a holy kind of waiting, and, and it's active. It's eager. It's, it's waiting that understands God's story of redemption. It's waiting well. It's believing that there's more to life than, than this suffering right now. Uh, even if this suffering uh, lasts not only from today to tomorrow, but from today to tomorrow to next week and next month and next year and to the very end of your life. Uh, a Christian, uh, by God's grace through the Holy Spirit as a first fruit, is able to understand that waiting uh, is, uh, is a beautiful response to our suffering. Why? Because we're waiting eagerly. It hurts, but it's not defining. It fits into a segment of God's story of redemption. And the story of redemption is larger than my suffering, regardless of how painful it is. And so when Paul uh, moves from uh, talking about the present suffering of the Christian to the present help of the Christian, he says uh, that the Christian has the help of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, first of all, helps us to wait well. But the Holy Spirit also, beginning in verse 26, helps us to pray well. So the word pray is in verse 26, and uh, the, the word for intercede is in 26 and 27, uh, and then that word is a picture of, an, of, a, of an, a mediator, a go-between uh, between us and uh, God. Now, I have known times in my own life where I have felt that the prayers were no longer in me. I have carried something to God over and over and over again, and I'm exhausted. And I know that many of you know that as well. There are some times when the prayer is simply not in us. Now, verse 26 is special music to our ears as Christians. Because praise be to God that his spirit is ideally suited to people like that. To those who are weak. And so it's appropriate for a Christian to be able to acknowledge that there are times when the prayers are gone. I'm empty of prayer. I'm done with prayer. I have no idea how to go further. And verse 26 tells us that God is with the weak. And a word for weak in 26, it's, uh, it's a word that, that can be used to describe a, uh, a physical illness. Uh, it's a word that has been used in Scripture to describe spiritual illness. It's a word that's been used to describe uh, timidity and, and fear. And if you're here this morning as a Christian and you uh, have lived in the laboratory of uh, spiritual illness or physical illness or uh, timidity or fear, uh, well... Look at verse 26. 
You have the Holy Spirit as a first fruit, especially for those who are weak. And Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit then uh, helps us in our weakness to pray as we ought because the Holy Spirit searches our hearts. The Holy Spirit knows our aches and our pains more than we do. The Holy Spirit understands my heart and takes my requests that I can't vocalize, that I don't feel are even inside of me. And the Holy Spirit takes those requests straight to God. This is the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if uh, you have a lot of friends or a few friends, but I hope it's not offensive to you to hear that friendships are hard work. They are. They're just hard work. And sometimes uh, we uh, hurt our friends. In fact, oftentimes the people that we hurt most of all are the people we're most intimately connected to. And we hurt our friends or our friends hurt us. I think all of us know this. But wouldn't it be great to have an intercessor that would take all that hurt and, and, and acknowledge it, would know it, but then patch it up? To take the pain of a friendship and to actually make that friendship a better friendship through the pain. And the Holy Spirit does that between us and God. The Holy Spirit actually works in us in such a way that, that the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting in our relationship with God. I don't know how to speak to God. I feel like I disappoint Him at every turn. But we have the Holy Spirit. And this indwelling Spirit carries my hurts and my cries to God with words that I cannot utter. And the Holy Spirit then does the heavy lifting of this relationship. The Holy Spirit helps us to wait well, but the Holy Spirit also helps us to pray well. But isn't, isn't this very interesting? That both our hope in God, that is to, to suffer and yet to wait patiently, to have an unseen hope, both our, our hope in God and our relationship with God depend upon the Holy Spirit. This is the time for the Christian to admit that really there's very little that we do in this relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There's very little that we do. Our hope is dependent upon the Holy Spirit and the cultivation of that relationship with God is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, we're able to wait eagerly and to hope. And with the Holy Spirit, we're able to speak with God and have a cultivated relationship with him. This is beautiful. This is a great promise to all those who uh, don't know what to do with their suffering. Do you know Jesus? What do you think about him? Well, Christians have uh, a great benefit in their suffering. Uh, They have the first fruit of the Holy Spirit uh, to help them that they might uh, wait in anticipation for the work of God and the story of redemption, and that they might uh, continue to have a close, intimate relationship with God, even amidst suffering because of that Holy Spirit. Now, what does Paul know? You see, Paul considers our present suffering, which leads him to consider our present help. 
And as he tells us this, we now understand uh, how he is actually able to see this uh, in his life, how he is able to reflect upon his present suffering without being lost in despondency and depression, uh, how to reflect upon his present suffering in such a way in which he considers the present help that he has in the Holy Spirit. How is he able to do that? Well, he has the Holy Spirit, but here he's telling us in the very close of our passage uh, how he understands his life. Everything he shares with us in verses 18 through 27, uh, he tells us because he knows about verses 28 through 30. It's what he knows about God that enables him to understand what to do with his suffering. He's been able to wait eagerly. He's been able to pray as he ought because of what we see in verses 28 through 30. These uh, passages here are uh, known uh, because of the Puritan William Perkins as the golden chain. Uh, Here in these two verses, we uh, read God's purpose for all Christians, and it's revealed, verse 30 in particular, uh, all of these works of God, they're stitched together like a golden chain. Uh, None of the links of that chain can go missing. Uh, All of the links in the chain depend upon one another, and the chain is fashioned by none other than God himself. And so it is a uh, a majestic image of the work of God. Uh, This is the uh, golden chain of salvation. Now, it's also been known as the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. But let me say this. There's a sense in which uh, this chain is so tightly connected uh, that to pull the links apart and to understand them separately is a hard task indeed. Uh, What Paul is doing is he's taking us into the very mind and the counsel of God. And so when Paul says that all things work together for good, we are very quick to assume that all things work together for good as I define good. I want to free you from that. That can be uh, very encouraging sometimes when you call something uh, good and it truly is good, but it's very hard when you call something good that uh, every, uh, every fiber of your being says, no, this is not good. I prayed for something other than this. This is ungood. Well, here's what Paul's saying. He says that all things work together for good according to God's definition. And that is indeed good. Because he says that a Christian is one who's been called. And I think uh, it is remarkable that in this, uh, in this expression of God's holy purpose, uh, salvation captured in these golden links uh, permanently affixed to one another, uh, really what Paul is highlighting is the fact that we are called as Christians. Verse 28, verse 30, both of them talk about calling. Uh, if we want to uh, say that there is uh, one particular link of this chain that Paul is really pointing at, it's the link of the chain that is our calling by the Holy Spirit. Uh, this connects very well with Romans chapter 1 when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. What does the gospel do? Uh, the, the gospel is the call to Christianity. And so in verse 28 and verse 30, uh, the call is the focus. And we could say it this way. We could say that in this present life, we have the help of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit teaching us to wait, and the Holy Spirit uh, that is uh, teaching us how to pray. But here... Here's the shining light of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes Christians. Not a single man or woman can make a Christian. 
The Holy Spirit does it. And that's, I think, why Paul emphasizes the calling. Uh, but, but notice it's, it's clear in front of us, even before uh, the calling of a Christian, keeping in mind that this uh, entire congregation is made up of people who were converted as adults, uh, even before this calling, a Christian is predestined by God. And a Christian is foreknown by God. Uh, These two words really belong together. They're in many ways the same thing. Uh, God predestines, God elects, he chooses, uh, but he doesn't do that in an impersonal way. Uh, To say that we are foreknown is to say that God knows us intimately and personally. Even from before creation, he has chosen us and he has known us intimately. Both of those things uh, happen before our calling. Now, if you thought that it was hard to wrap your mind around creation, waiting, and eager anticipation, how about that? That from before the foundations of the world, God not only chose all those who profess faith in him, but God also knew them, named them, intimate relationship with them. It's a challenging passage to be sure. But Paul goes on, he says, not only this, but this uh, good work of God, and it is only uh, God's work, that this good work of God is centered on Jesus. Uh, to be saved is to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now we saw first fruits of the Holy Spirit, a guarantee. But Jesus isn't called a first fruit, he's called a firstborn. Uh, he is the, the, the pattern for us, not in terms of ethics, but in terms of headship. He represents us. Paul has already said in Romans chapter 5 that Jesus is the second Adam. He is the one who represents us as Christians. And in Jesus, we have what Jesus has because he is the firstborn. And Paul backs off of this uh, meteoric expression of what it means to be a Christian in verse 30 when he says altogether that those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he what? He glorified. Now, if you're here this morning as a Christian, all Paul is doing is he is describing what your salvation is better than you would describe your salvation. This is a biblical way to understand what it means to be a Christian. If you for a moment thought that you're a Christian because you are philosophically and intellectually astute, you're wrong. If you for a moment think that you are a Christian because you came from the right family and have the right friends and grew up in the right part of the country, you're wrong. Paul says this is what a Christian is. A Christian is a result of God's work stitching that man and that woman into his story of redemption. But what he says here for the Christian in verse 30 is striking because at the very end he says he also glorified and glorified is in the past tense, uh, just like predestined and called and justified. Why would Paul do that? I wonder if Paul says uh, that we are glorified even now because he is referring to the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. There will come a time when Jesus returns physically made known to all creation, and he judges all creation. And at that time, uh, our bodies will be glorified. But Paul says here that there's a part of that glorified aspect of life that we have even in the present, and he can only be referring there to the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, there's a message here for uh, those of us who are suffering. If you're here this morning and you are particularly in the throes of pain and anguish and grief and suffering, I'm so glad that you're here. You're not here by mistake. For a Christian, suffering is worth thinking about. But not thinking about how you might endure or how you might make it stop. It's worth thinking about because it reminds you of who you are in Christ Jesus. As you suffer, that suffering by God's grace points to his golden chain of salvation. It reminds you that despite this suffering and despite this pain, you fit inside that story of redemption. And that story of redemption is not yet complete. That there's more to that story of redemption. That there will be a time where your sins will not be indwelling and therefore will not harass you. There will be a time when the world around you will not persecute you. That time is not now. But it will happen. Why will it happen? Because God's story of redemption is already written. Because that story of redemption is guaranteed to you by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the comfort for us is this. We may never stop crying before our Lord and Savior returns. The illness, the grief, the emotional pain, the suffering may be there all the way until Jesus Christ returns. The suffering may be there for all of your earthly days. But in Christ Jesus, that's not only okay, it's better than okay. Because you have what the world doesn't have. You have the Holy Spirit working in you that you would more and more wait, not simply generically, but wait with expectation. Wait eagerly. Because what is coming will come. And not only that, in the Holy Spirit, uh, you actually have in your suffering a relationship with God that's sustained by God. You have the indwelling spirit to unite, to unite, to be united even more deeply to God than ever before, despite your sufferings. And so this is what God does for the Christian. It's an offer of the promise of the gospel to those of you who aren't Christians. Uh, suffering is a real part of the Christian life, and so we acknowledge that. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit folds that suffering into God's holy purpose for our lives, into that grand story of his redeeming grace in the great chain. And so ponder your suffering. Ponder it. But know, Christian, who you are in God's story of redemption. Let's pray together. We do thank you, Father, that you've given to us Paul as an emissary of the gospel, that he would show us that gospel not only as words, but in how he dealt with his own suffering. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to suffer well. Would you help us to wait eagerly? Would you knit our hearts closely to you by the Holy Spirit? And Holy Father, would you help us to preach the gospel of the story of redemption to ourselves over and over and over again. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.